0: 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. We are continuing on in this uh, epistle that Peter writes, this letter that he writes, and um, earlier I read from Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans was written to the church uh, where Peter was when he wrote this book. Uh, by by best guesses of, of those who who study these kinds of things, they They believe that Peter was at the church in Rome when he's writing this epistle. And so he gets, uh, he, he was one of the ones that was reading the epistle to the Romans. And so uh, there's a lot of overlap between what Paul writes in Romans 12 and what Peter writes in this passage that we're going to consider this morning. But first Peter chapter three, stand with me as we consider our job of being upright in all of our dealings. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing." For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him and his lips from deceit, excuse me. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Pray with me. Father, I pray this morning that you will use your word to change us to be more like you. Break through the hearts of stone that we sometimes have. Pierce the armor that we have put on to try to block the things that we don't like. Shape us, mold us into your image that we may not only be like you, but that we may help others to be like you too. Use your word in this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Peter has been stressing for uh, a while, he's been stressing the call for Christians to endure unjust suffering and doing that while subordinating themselves, uh, allowing themselves to come under proper authority. He's He's talked about doing that in response to government. Uh, that, we, that we submit to the governing authorities, whether it's the Caesar or whether it's the governors that he puts in place or you know, whatever those systems of uh, 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 those human institutions that are set up for our benefit, that we submit ourselves to those in the proper ways. He's talked about it in regards to what we would today think of in terms of employment, but there it would be masters and slaves. Uh, we, we talked about the fact that like some large portion of the Roman Empire was, were slaves uh, to, to actual uh, landowners and, and masters. And so talking to them and explaining to them how they are to submit to their masters, whether they're good masters or bad masters, they are still called to live lives of, of submission to their masters. He talks about it in the context of marriage. And interestingly here, he doesn't just say the wives need to submit to the husbands. He also says, husbands, you don't get off the hook either. And that they submit to one another uh, as they live together, as they grow to becoming one. And now he's calling his readers to synthesize all this together. And he starts verse eight with uh, um, with this expression, finally. Now, he's about halfway through the book. He doesn't mean finally as in this is the last thing. When he says finally, he's saying, I'm reaching now the culmination of the argument. All of this that I've been talking about is leading to this point right here. And what he does is he, he gives us a call. You see, God calls us to be upright. He doesn't give us the option. He doesn't say, do you want to do the right thing? He calls us to live a life of righteousness. He he demands it of us. He expects it of us. Thankfully, he empowers it in us. We'll talk a little bit about that shortly. But God actually calls us out to be his. And part of that is to be upright. Now, he could just command it, but he does something interesting. Instead of giving commands, instead of just saying, do these things instead he uses adjectives when I was in school I took a creative writing class in high school it's an elective that that was offered and I thought hey that that'd be interesting I'll take that and the the teacher kept saying the same thing all throughout the class she said other stuff too but she kept saying this every class she would come back to the same point show don't tell What she meant was, you can tell me what happens in a story. You can explain it detail by detail, but that's not good creative writing. Good creative writing doesn't just tell you, it shows you. You use picture words and you use descriptions so that you can can see it with your eyes, so you feel like you're experiencing it for yourself. Those of you who are avid readers, you know, good authors show, they don't tell That's what Peter's doing. He's showing. Instead of just giving the commands, instead of just saying, this is what God commands of you, he's going to show us what it looks like in action. He's going to show us the characteristics that make an upright person. So God calls us to be upright. These are imperatives, but they're imperative adjectives so that we can see it in real life. So we get a better view. Uh, uh, One author put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, God does not merely want to be obeyed. He wants to be understood. And so instead of just commanding, he shows us what it looks like. Look look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Five Adjectives. Now in English it's hard to put all these in adjective form. So your version may have something like be unified in mind and 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 they look like verbs. Uh, Here in this version it they look like nouns. Have these things. But the point is still there. He's showing us what it looks like. Verse nine says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary bless. To this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And so he calls us to be upright and he gives us uh, these five adjectives and then this, this one other description in verse nine. And they all play together to show us what someone who's upright looks like. First, they're unified in mind. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. This isn't just we agree with each other on everything. This isn't just, oh, oh, uh, you say that, so I say that too. This isn't the way that um, teenagers often, my friend likes this, so I like it too. That's not not what unity of mind means. It's not you tell me what to think and then I'll think it. Unity of mind is a little different. Have you ever seen... uh, You may have heard or seen uh, people use this illustration where they they say that marriage is like a triangle. You've got the husband down on one bottom and the wife down on the other bottom and God's at the top. And the closer you draw to God, the closer you draw together. Y'all heard that used in talking about marriage? That's unity of mind. Unity of mind is having the same goal, having the same purpose, having the same focus. And because they have the same focus, they are moving in the same direction together. They may not agree on all the details. Everything may not line up exactly perfectly. But we're both going after the same thing. And he says within the Christian community, especially, but even outside the Christian community, you are to be unified in mind. You are to have that same focus on that one Lord. And that one focus is driving you together to be unified it comes from uh, one commentator says loving dialogue and especially a common focus on the one lord to put it another way we're birds of a feather and we flock together that's being unified in mind you cannot be upright without being unified now part of that means you got to be in the body of believers but you can't just be present And you can't just say, well, everybody else is voting for this, so I'm going to vote it too. It takes more than that because it's not just agreeing, it's also caring for others. It's not just this is what it says, and so I go along with it. It's I actually care for these other people too. Caring for others. The word in the verse is sympathy. We have an adjective for this, sympathize or uh, uh, sympathetic excuse me sympathize is the verb form now that's that's what this word is it's it's to be sympathetic it's to care for someone else in fact um in the traditional sense it's to allow yourself to feel the emotions that are being experienced by someone else romans twelve fifteen illustrates this beautifully the word sympathy isn't there but look at how it's demonstrated. Look at how it's shown, not told. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We care for others and we're able to sympathize with them because we care for them. We're able to bear the burden when they're struggling because we care for them. We're able to rejoice out of pure joy, not just because they're shouting and they're clapping and they're happy, so we have to act like it too. No, we are genuinely happy because they got that scholarship, because they got that promotion, because that great thing has happened. We're also genuinely sad and concerned for the person who is in pain and struggling and mourning the loss of a loved one because we care for them. And that care drives us to be sympathetic. You cannot be upright without being emotionally connected with other believers. And not just, not just present and accounted for, but being involved. You can, you, can, you can go a little ways, reading your Bible, praying and, and, and studying and knowing what it says, but until you actually live it out in community, it's just half-baked. It's not, it's not pure righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that we're able to sympathize because Christ sympathized with us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have one that's aloof. We don't have one that says, I really don't know what you're going through. No, no, no. He was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. He did it. He survived the temptation, and he overcame it. Not sinning, not falling, not failing. And so he knows what we're going through. He knows how hard it is to deal with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He knows what it's like to go through the difficulties we face, especially when it comes to sin. You don't think he was tempted when when Satan says, turn this stone into bread, you who haven't eaten for the last 40 days. You don't think that's temptation? His body feels like he's about to die. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. He knows the temptation to judge someone who deserves it. But yet he says, Father, forgive them. Not because... Not because... He's thinking in his mind, one day they'll get their justice No, no, no. Do you know the only person, this actually gets a little bit more to, to one of the future ones, but the only person in the Bible that is said to actually have compassion, not just to be told to have compassion, but who actually has compassion, the only person in the New Testament that it says that of is Jesus. He looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them. He cared for them. And because... He has demonstrated his sympathy and the way that he loves us. We are are able to express that same kind of sympathy for others too because it's God's love for them flowing through us. That leads us to the next one. We've got unified in mind. We've got caring for others. Third thing, loving the body. We actually love one another. Someone uh, once said there are 365 one another's in the Bible. 365 times it says to do something to one another. And it's all good stuff. It's not bad stuff. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Y'all know the Greek word behind this. In fact, there's a city named Philadelphia after this word. Love the brothers. Now, it's not just the family love. It's not just the love of siblings. See, because we're siblings in God's family, aren't we? brothers and sisters in Christ we can have that same sort of love too in fact we should a new commandment I give to you Jesus says that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another do you think he's trying to tell us something I think so fourth one tender in heart yours might say compassionate Your version might say pitiful. Compassionate's a good good one. Tenderhearted is a good one, too. In fact, Nicole, you know what Ephesians 4.32 says, right? James, you know what it says, right? Mitchell. See, all y'all went to a school where that was the school verse, so you all ought to know it. Be ye kind one to another. Tender hearted. I pick on them. It's easy to pick on them. Especially my two. Nicole's like, oh no. But same word. Be tender hearted to one another. The word actually literally means good bowels. They saw the bowels, the intestines, as the place where compassion resides. It's why the Hebrew word for compassion is so closely linked with a mother's womb. You get butterflies in your stomach when you care about someone and you find out they they like you too, right? The compassion that we are to show isn't just pity. It isn't just sympathy. Though those things are okay and they're good, it goes beyond that. It's a care that is fully realized. Do you remember when Jesus is uh, talking about uh, the last day? He's got these two groups separated and he's got those, the sheep and the goats. And he turns to the sheep and he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And, and all these kinds, of, when I when I, when I I was homeless, you, you sheltered me, all these kinds of things. And they say, when did we do all that? And what does Jesus say? He says, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. He turns to the goats and he says, you didn't do that stuff. So. You didn't clothe me. You didn't feed me. You didn't give me to drink.
1: You didn't do any of that
0: stuff for me. And they say, when did we not do those things? And he says, when you didn't do it for the least of these. That's tenderheartedness. When we do for each other, we are doing for God. It shows his compassion and his care. It's not just something we feel. It's something we act out. Fifth thing, we are also to be humble attitude this one I have to admit is the easiest one I am so humble that's yeah thank you Carrie I was hoping someone would laugh that's if, if you ever hear someone bragging about their humility just just know that it's not they're not humble look at the uh, the end of 3 eight the last thing it says and a humble mind I got to thinking about this one because it, it literally means a lowly mind That's what the word literally means. And he's kind of hearkening back to the first one. The first one, he said, you need to be unified in mind. This one, he says, now you need to be humble in mind. And those two really go together because you're not going to unite yourself with somebody if you think you're better than them and if you think you know more than they do. But if you're humble, if you're humble, well, then you can actually be united. I think it's really interesting, though, because... Of who wrote this? You know Peter. He's the one that says, though all would deny you, I will never deny you. And within 24 hours has now said for the third time, I don't know him. Do you think he learned the lesson of humility the hard way? I think he did. I think think he's learned that one the hard way. When Jesus is in the temple, he tells a uh, parable of these two guys. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. They're both praying. The Pharisee is out in the middle of the room in a place of prominence. He's standing up, his hands are toward heaven. It's kind of a typical way to pray of that day. And, and, and he's saying, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner like that guy over there. He's pointing to that tax collector who's in the corner beating his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus says? He's the one who left justified. Why did this sinner leave justified humility? Then Jesus gives the point. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Those are some great adjectives, but Peter's not done. He turns and, and now he gives, a, a he comes back into verb form but he states it as a participle, so it's, this, it's not a verb that's a command so much as it's a verb that's illustrating, again, what he's trying to show. In verse 9, to top off all these things that he's already described, he's all, he now turns his attention to how we respond to evil. And he says this, uh, pull up verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless You know, you you can live by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Everybody's going to be blind and toothless because we're all guilty. No, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, we live by blessing, not retaliating. That's hard because they deserve it. They deserve to get put in their place. They deserve to get socked in the nose. They deserve to get thrown out. They deserve to get mistreated. They deserve to get sued. They deserve what's coming to them. But God says, Don't you do that? No. Peter is obviously remembering the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 6, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse who curse you, excuse me. Pray for those who who abuse you. Our response to evil with good shows that we are God's children. And it demonstrates that we trust him to administer justice. It's it's enduring unjust suffering the way that Christ did. Peter could just cut off here. This is a great place to cut off. This is a good description of the upright person. But he goes one step further. He draws from Psalm 34 And he reminds us that we don't just do what's right because it's right. We do what's right with the promise that God will not let our suffering be in vain. We live upright because he is upright. And when we do so, God blesses us when we are upright. So not only do we have the instructions of what to do, we have the promise that God will bless our efforts when we do it. You know, sometimes I don't just need a what, I need a why. Are y'all like that? It's not enough to know what to do. You gotta have a reason why you're doing it in the first place. Why am I going through all this trouble? What is the purpose of this? Now, sometimes God doesn't give us the purpose straight out. Sometimes he doesn't say you're going through this so that this and this and that'll happen. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have to do that. But he does show us that our suffering's not in vain. He does show us that when we live uprightly, he will bless those efforts. Psalm uh, uh, Psalm 34 is where Peter quotes this from, verses 10 through 12. He says, for who desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So he says, you really want to see good days? You really want to have a good life? Then tell the truth. He continues, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good you want to have a good life? Stop doing stupid stuff. Stop doing bad stuff. Stop doing the stuff that you know you shouldn't be doing. Do the right thing. He continues, let him seek peace and pursue it. Notice he doesn't just say, let him try to get peace. He doesn't say, let him make peace. He says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Here's the blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Three blessings I find, especially in that verse 12. First is that God watches over us. Anytime you see the eyes of God mentioned in scripture, God is ready to act. He sees his word, watches over it to perform it. He sees wickedness and he judges it perfectly, by the way. He sees the struggles of his people, and he responds with salvation. Where God's eyes see, God acts. For the eyes of the Lord, the psalmist wrote, are on the righteous. He's watching you. He's not just watching you. He's watching over you. There's a little bit of a difference to that, isn't there? We think think of God watching us as though he's ready to punish us. But in reality, God's watching over us because he wants to bless us. He wants to protect us. He wants to do good for us. He's watching over us. You don't need angels watching over you. You got the king of kings and lord of lords doing that. He listens to us. You ever had someone try to tell you something and you just didn't care what they were talking about at all? And you're trying to listen and you're trying to, to... But it's hard... God really listens to us. God has a are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. I thought about uh, Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus 1, the people are crying out to God because there's a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, and he has now enslaved the Israelites. And they're crying out to God to help them. And you know what the next, you know what the next thing it says? The next thing that happens is there's a baby born named Moses. it sets the scene it has the king trying to kill off all these Israelite boys, but the Hebrew midwives won't do it and it's in that context that Moses is born. his mother hides him for a few months King's trying Pharaoh's trying to destroy him but no matter instead Pharaoh's going to end up raising him through his daughter and finds this baby in this Tiny little ark like basket, and she has compassion. And now Pharaoh is paying for this boy to eat and grow and learn this boy that he wanted to kill. Funny how God works things out sometimes. His ears hear our prayers, he's listening to us. And the great thing about it is sometimes we pray really crazy stuff, and he says, No, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to do this, and this is much better for you anyway. So even if he says no to our prayers, he's still giving us something better in return. So it's a win-win, right? Third blessing. It may not seem like a blessing, but it is. Not only does he watch over us, not only does he listen to us, he also avenges for us. Remember what what, uh, uh, verse Paul quoted in Romans. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. It's absolutely true. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We don't have to take vengeance in our own hands because God's got it covered. We don't have to defend our good name because God's got it covered. Besides, his things much better and much more worth defending anyway. We don't have to feel like we have to take on justice ourselves. It's okay. God's got this. We can trust that he'll do the right thing, that he will have perfect justice in perfect timing. I wanted to... I wanted to take a minute because these are not the only blessings that are mentioned in Psalm 34. I wanted to take a minute and read to you most of that song and listen to all the blessings that come from the person who is righteous. Now, granted, we're not righteous, not without his help. But God's promise we don't do this alone. Listen to his promises. I'm going to start in uh, Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's so good you can taste it. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. You're not going to go without. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You're not going to be in need. He's got you covered. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The Lord hears and delivers them from the earth. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's a messianic prophecy, right there. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a great comfort to know that when we are trying to do God's will, that he is not only empowering us, but he's blessing our efforts and blessing us in the process. He hears us, he watches over us, He does the avenging for us so that we can do what he has called us to do, to be what he has called us to be. We're called to be upright, church. It's where God's blessings are. So as you're suffering, as you're lamenting, as you're struggling, as you're rejoicing, as you're happy, in all things, let's be upright. Father, I pray that we will live your word. Lord, I know some of us, uh, we try to live your word and sometimes we need help. <laughs> I say sometimes as if there's times when we don't. We really need your help all the time. If we're honest, we would admit that every breath we draw is because of you and we need you more than we're willing to admit. Father, would would you help us? Would you empower us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Help us live out these adjectives, be unified in mind, being sympathetic, caring for others, having love for the brethren, loving the body. Would you help us to have compassion, be tender-hearted toward one another? Would you help us to be humble, think of ourselves in a proper way? Would you help us to not repay evil for evil, not repay reviling for reviling, not retaliate against those who do us wrong, but to bless them. Father, thank you for blessing us. Help us to bless you as we live for you. Lead us in the way you'd have us to go. In Christ's name, amen.